You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I saw this in my own companies. I saw this in other companies. Um, the really big smack upside the head was when we sold my last company to NetSuite. And mm. Great company, amazing company, growing at a breakneck pace. Uh, Joseph, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Um, I've been looking really, uh, looking forward to having you on. Um, you're someone who has multiple founder belts under you, and uh, you're currently working on two different things at the same time. But one of the main th interests I have with you is you're trying to solve this problem with sales in tech. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've been running a lot of thought leadership around this, and your companies are devoted to this. Um, I, I really want to break this down, right? Um, so starting for, with you, uh, what's your background? Like, what got you into entrepreneurship? Sure. So, I mean, computer engineering at the University of Waterloo on the academic side, but started running my own companies while I was still in school. And the kind of B2B tech space has been uh, kind of home, home turf for me. So run a couple of companies there. And all of them, all of them, the biggest challenge has been growing effective sales teams. And so that's what's got me into the latest foray. You know, how do, how do I solve that and do that in a, at a broader scale? Absolutely. And, and this is a similar program, a problem that uh, we keep seeing over and over again is that technical led teams, especially technical led teams, right? So founders who are really good at product, building on a technical uh, solution. They, they struggle a lot uh, with when it comes to sales, especially, you know, some of them, some, uh, some founders, you know, they might have some initial relationships that they have um, uh, in the industry that uh, they're solving a problem for. But once they exhaust those initial uh, relationships, to streamline sales, to understand it's it's a it's a kind of a strategic, it's almost like a it's a process that implement. It's a really a struggle for them. And I and some of the things that we're seeing is that, you know, like one of the things that being like, like you know, when you when you're building a product, you know, there's a front end team, there's a back end team. You know, yeah. there's specialized roles. There's like almost like a handoff period. There's a product manager, right? Um, you know, having worked in sales for a long time, I mean, you, you notice there's a difference between the person who is like, you know, starting a conversation and getting the ball rolling to somebody who's managing the account, someone who's overseeing the entire process, someone who helps the after sales support team. Like, it's a multi-stage process, right? Um, could you talk a little bit more about this? Like, what are the problems that you see from your end that, that companies uh, run into when it comes to sales? Yeah, there's a bunch of them. So hey, to really highlight that, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I saw this in my own companies. I saw this in other companies. Um, the really big smack upside the head was when we sold my last company to NetSuite. And mm. Great company, amazing company, growing at a breakneck pace. Sales team that was just crushing it consistently. They had almost 2,000 sales reps. So when, when we joined and we were taking our product out to this large sales organization and realized the professionalism, the approaches they had, it was this very humbling moment of realizing mm. that, wow, we really had not taken this seriousness uh, seriously enough. Uh, and so some of the mistakes that we see are things like, not properly enabling a sales organization. Like if you talk to an engineering organization and they recognize, hey, you bring in interns or co-ops, you build them, you nurture them, you bring in a junior sales, a junior engineer and you grow them over time. So many sales organizations seem to think that they're gonna hire their employees, fully formed sales reps for their solution. And, and they write job descriptions that are unreasonable. They say, hey, mm. I'm selling b2b cryptocurrency software I, I want someone who's been selling b2b cryptocurrency software for three years and 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 these are just unreasonable expectations so it's you know that lack of nurturing the lack of professionalism um, but across all of them across all of them one of the big challenges we see is that as tech companies mm. and i say this with love in my heart because I'm, I'm deep on tech i, I long tech we we have a, a certain amount of privilege and we assume we're going to get a 
a sea of amazing candidates and we can cherry pick out perfect fits and we don't necessarily look beyond the barriers. And the reality is great sales skills don't come from having selling, having sold software for three years to your industry. They come from a whole host of other areas. And that, that's why we launched Yvaro. There's incredible mm -hmm. people doing incredible things. And sometimes they just need a bit of a hand up to get over some of those barriers that we have. Uh, and that's, that, that's a, a challenging mistake to watch people make again and again. Yeah, I first heard about uh, you uh, through Kite. Um, mm -hmm. We got introduced to Kite through a uh, a change management company we work with uh, out of out of uh, out of, uh, um, out of York Region, uh, Change Connect. Right, oh, they highly they, recommended you guys. They're a fantastic crew. I, I love them so much. Absolutely. Uh, so Change Connect, they go into companies, uh, mostly SMEs, but also they started releasing work with startups, and they do like change management. You know how to upgrade their processes and 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 uh, strategies. And one of the main things that they recommend was Kite. Mm -hmm. And when we were first talking to them last year about like, you know, like implementing some kind of like, you know, one of the things I was really interested in. So it's a little background. Usually we I have a kind of kind of a primer talk with our guests prior to a call. So I apologize. I didn't have this here. But um, so in my background, like, you know, I, I worked as an entrepreneur in residence at the University of Toronto. I also had like at the same time, like a sales career. And the reason I became an entrepreneur residence because because, you know, I had three failed startups behind under my belt before I turned 25. You know, the idea was to build a billion dollar empire, but uh, failed three times. But uh, UFT saw some value in what I was doing, brought me into the ecosystem. It's like, hey, we know we're gonna keep creating companies, but teach while you're doing it, right? Helps other, other, other companies grow. And that was my first foray into seeing how others kind of like uh, develop companies, how different skill sets come into play and how different um, experiences kind of shape the formation of companies. And there's no real cookie cutter way of doing these, right? And like with Kite, the problem you guys are solving was playbooks, right? This mm -hmm. idea that um, it's like, you know, you write a playbook of how you go to customers, how to, how, to, how to get to end customers. And your solution was, you know, kind of systemizing that process, right? Could you talk a little more about that problem and what led you to Kite? Totally. So a good way to think about it is uh, if, we, if we go back to the way most companies train their sales reps, not just sales reps, really any role. It's just felt very acutely in sales. Uh, it usually goes something like this. Hey, welcome to the team. Here's a bunch of videos, maybe other sales calls. Go watch them, do what they do. Here's some slide decks about our company and our products and our competitors. There's a hundred slides about our competitors. Uh, go memorize those. And we're gonna sit you in in a session where we go through our sales script. Listen mm -hmm. and, and memorize that. Uh, and you, you get someone to do that for a week if you're lucky. And then you throw them into the deep end and say, hey, well, clearly you've memorized everything. Go, go forth and sell. And it's just, not a reasonable expectation. So what if instead of that session of you know, memorization, the stack of slides, the set of videos, what if you could give someone a cheat sheet? They, they can just keep on their screen and that cheat sheet updates with their sales situation. Mm -hmm. you know, the, yeah. the, the good analogy is if you look at a pro quarterback, you know what they got on their arms, they got a playbook right there. That playbook doesn't tell you, here's how you pull back your arm and throw a pass. That playbook is like, hey, in this moment, call this play. And that's what we're trying to equip sales reps with. You know, mm -hmm. How do you call the right play in the right moment? And the results were incredible. Uh, yeah. it, it, it really was fantastic. Not just with you know, Agnes and Change Connect and the team there, but uh, we, we power 6,500 playbooks across North America. That's uh, mm -hmm. a, a real privilege. Yeah, absolutely. So like the, the idea of playbooks, you know, it's like, you know, the training is separate. Like how do you, how to do the sales and how to, how to, like, and how to have the conversation is separate. But the playbooks is like, how do you operate if this happens in that? Mm -hmm. Is that is that kind of true? It's like it's almost like um, operate this function when you see this, when you see this in the, in the field. 
it's, it's a lot of those. It's a lot of the, the tidbits, a lot of the tribal knowledge. You know, the things that if you tell your team, hey, think about all the great customer stories you have and build some training videos. It's like, wow, that's a huge ask. People just aren't going to do it. None of it gets documented. But when you say, hey, jot it down in a play, make it available for your next colleague, you'd be amazed at how much tribal knowledge you collect. And so our teams, our customers, we see them running playbooks that have not just the framework for, hey, here's the process to follow, here's what to do, but you get all those little notes in the margins that normally just kind of fall by the wayside. Uh, and so you get these incredible customer stories, incredible competitive positioning statements, incredible discovery questions, uh, all available. Um, so what we see is we see a lot of the the best sales reps, you know, tracking their notes, making their playbooks, and then the newest sales reps coming on and being able to use those same plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it takes your best sales reps and makes that knowledge more institutionalized. Gotcha. So for you, for you, like, you know, coming from more of a technical background and, and, and building product, what what was your particular struggles with sales? Like, was that something that became natural to you? Something you had to go out of, out of your way to learn? And how did you do that? Oh, no, it was terrible. Oh, like a miserable learner. <laughs> I mean, like an introvert's introvert. Yeah. I mean, you know, like a lot of my colleagues and friends when the global pandemic struck and everyone was working from home, it's like, damn, I've trained my whole life for this. This is great. <laughs> um, but I mean, I found, launched our, my first company while still at university and so I had to quickly learn what was involved in doing that. And I mean, a lot of the learning techniques were things like public speaking with Toastmasters, networking at BNI groups, uh, watching people who do it really, really well and emulating them, trying to speak at as many events as possible. I mean, a, a lot of what I'm sure your listeners, your network, your students uh, were, and your uh, mentees were doing, um, you had to do a lot of that. I think the part that was most most interesting though was over the last, uh, over the last few years, really since selling my last company to NetSuite, becoming a real student of the art of, of, and the science of sales structure and sales management and recognizing what it takes to motivate, encourage, and enable a team, uh, that type of, uh, of focus has been, I think, what's been most beneficial. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, that's true, right? Like, especially when you're doing, teaching, it's one thing to teach yourself sales, but other people sales, the leadership aspect, right? Mm-hmm. So as, a, as you're joining the entrepreneur, like, you know, you have to learn so many different skill sets. Like, you, it's not just, you know, you have to build a product, you also have to build a team. It's not uh, so much that you had to build develop skills, but you also have to d- develop skills in others, mm-hmm. right? That leadership aspect comes into play, right? Like when you're, when you're, this is, this is like this chicken and egg problem happens when you're in a company, right? Like when you do really good at a job and they promote you to a manager, there's this understanding that, oh, just because you're good at that job means you're good at managing others who are also doing that job, mm-hmm. right? And with entrepreneurship, it's the other way around. It's like you want to build this thing, but you need other people to do so, right? And there's really no no like cookie cutter approach to leadership where everyone kind of has their own kind of models of that, right? So how do you become an effective leader when you also care so much about this baby you're trying to build? You know, it's tough. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean two things two things that always uh, you know stuck with me. One of my one of my mentors, uh, you know, I think did a really good job of helping me internalize the idea of avoiding the Dunning Kruger effect. You know, that that idea of you're so incompetent at something, you think you're excellent. Uh, and and that happens. That really happens. When people don't realize how difficult or complex something is, they think they're really good at it. Um, and so one of the things that one of my my mentors really pushed me on was, you know, avoid that like a plague. Because mm-hmm. if, if you're a founder, you're a CEO, and you're suffering from that illusion of competence, well, you're going to screw it up. And so mm-hmm. every time there's been a new area of the business that we need to build, we need to grow, 
one of the uh, the first things that I try to do is is learn as much as I can in a short period of time about that space. You know, how do I internalize how ignorant I really <laughs> am? How do I internalize how incompetent I actually am? Yeah. So that I can find someone who actually is much much better. Uh, and so that that was really one of them. Um, and that's been really helpful because as we've so right now, perfect case study, perfect example. All of my companies have been B two B software, mm-hmm. selling software, running demos, doing discovery calls. Great, no problem. I can do this. Um, Uvaro is a, it's a training program. It's like a school. We're selling to consumers. We're selling training. Like, I mean, I don't know. Are we competing with colleges? I don't know. Like, this is individual consumer marketing and sales. I don't know how to market to consumers. We're hiring for a head of marketing with that skill set, but this is an area where I'm going deep right now to mm-hmm. learn how incompetent I am. So that's that's one angle that I think has served me well in, in staying really humble and true. Um, but if I had to actually borrow a framework, like take it off the shelf, read the book, the one that I've leaned on, uh, again, I got it from uh, one of my, my mentors was situational leadership. And as I thought long and hard about how to grow leaders, how to make managers successful, how to make executives successful, the situational leadership uh, framework I found very, very helpful because it's less about coaching specific competencies and skills and more about giving them the support necessary for the situation that they're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the other things you talked about, like it's about letting go of ego almost like, you know, like, and it's one of the hardest things like a lot of entrepreneurs kind of fail at because they're so they're so ingrained with this idea that they want to birth into the world that they, they, they put themselves away or to let to empower others to take a charge certain parts it comes really becomes really difficult or become a concept right um talking about which you right this sales mm-hmm. leadership program that you're running right you're 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 taking people and you're helping them training them and giving them the, uh, the skills they need to do sales when it comes to technology companies that's right um i mean that's such a big need in this industry because what we're seeing a lot is uh, a lot of like one of the the, uh, one of the biggest um, skills uh, technology companies hire for, right? I think, the, I think the second most thought of skill is sales, right? And they hire for this. And just like you said, you know, they list out all the requirements. We need someone who have done this, who, 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 who had these, hit these requirements, who can do this work. But then all the people apply. And sometimes a lot of sales leaders from different fields, you know, Toronto, especially being like a banking city, you know, the banking industry like developed a lot of sales leadership and, and there's a lot of sales talent in Toronto. Yeah. But to jump the ship from going from a traditional industry like banking to like a tech company, right? There's a huge uh, learning curve almost and almost like a uh, culture shift that has, has happened. And you see a lot of these applicants who go and apply for these sales jobs but can't make that make that transition, yeah. right? Not necessarily because they haven't done sales or, or or they can't prove competence, but just because they don't fit in that mold that that technology is looking for. Yeah, it's terrible. It's really painful. It is. Uh, I am so embarrassed for our industry. Mm. It's, it's the only way to put it. Uh, the reality is, uh, so many sales leaders, so many founders, so many executives, so many people across the board are relying on really bad proxy signals. Uh, and. I'll give you an example. We do this in engineering roles too, so it's not a uniquely sales problem. You know, a lot of engineering firms will will look at a resume, they'll flip through, and they're like, "There's six companies on this person's resume, and I don't know any of them." But oh, they've got GitHub on their resume. That means they must be a good engineer. And we do the same thing in sales. We look at the resume, we look at the background, or we look at their behaviors and their habits, mm. and we go, "Oh, they they must be a really good salesperson," because there isn't the same evaluation. I'll give you an anecdote that I think highlights it perfectly. Uh, we graduate a cohort of trained sales professionals every month. 
So we see this across the board, uh, but I've got a recent anecdote that's really, really good. We've got uh, one, of our, one of our clients, so a graduate of the program, he's trained in hospitality. So he's worked hotel desks, he's sold uh, business deals, he's booked events at hundreds of rooms at a time, he's booked one person at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, also a newcomer to Canada. So there's all of the, the, the cultural changes, the dealing with snow, the living with family while you figure out your house, there's all these things. Um, he goes through a program and he gets hired at the same time. So in the cohort, uh, another classmate who's got sales experience in Canada uh, selling uh, security and HVAC. Hmm. And during the interview process, during the hiring process, you know, constantly, they're like, oh, this person who has, has some sales experience, I mean, his English is perfect, you know, really engaging, like, oh, I just want to keep talking to him, he's going to do so well, he's going to do so great. Um, in our graduate, there was a little bit more apprehension, like, oh, he's a little bit more soft-spoken, he doesn't seem as much of a you know, go-getter. These are more cultural norms for a newcomer yeah. to Canada. Uh, they're just right now closing out their, their three-month probationary period. Uh, and of course, yeah, I mean, this is an anecdote where a sales training program, so you know where this is going. Uh, mm. You know, our grad is exceeding quota and doing almost 50% better than their classmate, and, and sorry, than their uh, cohort in terms of the, the person who brought on at the same time. We see this repeated time and time again because the proxy signals we use, mm. hey, did that person jump into the call right away really enthusiastically? Now, you know, did this person go door to door and demonstrate they could grind? These are poor proxies for being able to succeed in tech sales. Like in tech sales, it's actually much more about, can you work the system? Can you ask the discovery question? Can you see that indicator? Can you disqualify a bad lead? Can you work the deal? It is like operating the machine of your sales engine. And we've attuned our whole ecosystem to looking for these proxy signals. Like, hey, do I really want to chat with them on Zoom? Yeah, let's hire them into sales role. It's just a terrible way to hire. Mm-hmm. So what does an ideal environment look like when it comes to like, like uh, sales and tech, right? Like how do we train tech, like technology companies, startups especially, on a better way of understanding how to grow sales teams, right? Like I think it was... Um, it was uh, Salesforce, right, who uh, kind of championed the current model, which is, you know, you get a VDR and, S, like, you know, an SDR doing outbound or inbound kind of uh, kind of like opening the bridge. You're an account manager afterwards who, you know, has like three, like, you know, on, on top of like three BDRs and kind of takes the account afterwards and kind of warmed up and takes it onwards. And like it's like a multi-pronged approach like uh, that uh, like uh, like that tech company that trying to implement especially when it comes to b2b sales right that kind of comes into play when b2c comes involved you're kind of in tune you're kind of put into like a growth role with marketing involved right like is there a playbook for when you're a tech company that's growing and you need to build a sales team on how to best do it uh, well i mean there is there are there's a ton of sales consultants out there uh and yeah. i mean a lot of the sales methodologies i mean salesforce popularized medpick and it's a great methodology but there's a ton of them out there too mm-hmm. and uh it doesn't mean that you all have to. Yeah. It doesn't mean that we all need to model exactly what's been done before. Mm-hmm. The really big thing, the really big thing that I think companies are struggling with, and the founders are struggling with, is recognizing that it isn't actually magic. It really is about thoughtful processes and best practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reality is, the evolution. Like it, we're talking about this right now. In 10 years, it's going to be completely different. And we saw this happen in engineering as well. Mm. I mean, you go back 10 years ago, people weren't talking about automated testing. They weren't talking about, you know, SREs. They weren't talking about um, 
you know, uh, software engineering, you know, software quality engineering, all these things that are very commonplace right now. And we all recognize if you're building an engineering team, you need automated tests, you need continuous delivery, you need all these things. But I mean, 10 years ago, there were still a lot of people who were saying, you know, I don't know if this is really needed. This might be a waste of time. I don't know if this is really good. They don't necessarily internalize it. Mm. We're still in the same stage with sales. And the reality is those systems, those methodologies, like exceptional discovery questions at the beginning to disqualify out, really clear SLAs between your marketing and your sales team so that they agree on what a quality lead is and how it's going to be treated, um, really clear pipelines, a really good cadence using tools sales automation tools, engagement tools, metrics, call coaching. These are all processes that you need to do. They're a time investment, but every tech company is a two engine plane. I mean, you have your engineering team and you have your sales team and you need both of them running. If you only invest in the tools and the automation and the process on engineering and you don't do that on sales, you're, you're not going to fly straight. You have to do on both. Cool. So going back to you, Vero, like, you know, like the decision, the process, like what, what, what came to your mind? Like, where do you see this uh, problem set from your point of view? Right. And how did you come across like solving it? So uh, your Vero's model, um, I believe it was um, you train people for free, mm-hmm. right? Um, you give free sales training on, on, on how to do technology sales and stuff like that. And you connect them with job placements. Right. And, uh, and there's a, there's a monetization there, right? Kind of. Yeah. Um, the way you've described it uh, could imply that the the hiring company is paying for the training, and that's not actually the case. Okay. Um, ours is a little different. I mean, our customer is the the student, you know, mm-hmm. the the person who's who's getting the training. The difference is that we believe in it so strongly, we have a payment model where you don't pay until you land that job. Okay. And so once you land that permanent job, then you pay us, and you're only paying as a percentage of your base salary. Hmm. So it's geared to the role that you have. Mm-hmm. Our success is our students' success, quite literally. Mm-hmm. If they don't succeed, we don't make money. So we're, we're really incentivized to have an effective program. Um, the way we found that problem, though, I mean, we're selling playbook software. Yeah. We're seeing companies that are growing, companies that aren't, companies that are succeeding, companies that are failing. Um, also, half of our sales came from sales consultants. Companies mm-hmm. who go in and say, I'll, I'll implement your playbook, I'll teach you challenger sales, med pick, do whatever, and we're going to leave these playbooks kite behind. And we could see who's doing it really well, who's doing great. And we we worked with a number of those consultants to design our curriculum because they know how to work with a company, but they don't have an offering for one person, two people. So we aggregated some of that demand, created a program, tested it out about this time last year, had ridiculous success, and so launched our first public program in January. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had 150 people apply uh, in January. Uh, accepted about 20 of them into the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this month, it's December now, so less than a year, uh, we'll do over, excuse me, we'll do over 900 applicants this month. Wow. Uh, and it's been just crazy. And it's all across North America. So mm-hmm. the training is all online, all remote. And our students are, you know, as, you know, down in, in, in Florida and Texas and Winnipeg and Vancouver. It's uh, It's really fun. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can definitely see a huge demand in this and, and, and moving forward. Um, how's it from the employer side? Like, what's the reaction been there? Like, um, has do you work directly with employers? Like, do you have partnerships there in place, or is it up to the, your graduates to go out and prove themselves? So uh, we don't place our grads. Mm-hmm. We have a career coaching program to help make sure that they optimize, you know, search. So uh, our grads are typically landing jobs 17 days after they graduate. Uh, on average, they're they're just over doubling their income. Uh, mm-hmm. So we've got great track record, but we're not a placement agency. They still mm-hmm. need to do the work. We just make it way easier. Um, the employers we work with, yes, uh, 
uh, we have a free newsletter. Uh, there's about 900 companies on that list. Um, and every month, our list of graduates gets sent out to them. Uh, and so that, that definitely helps accelerate the job search. Uh, but we do also do uh, contingent uh, recruiting with our graduates. So if a company says, hey, I really want some help following this role with your graduates, uh, and we only bring in a couple of companies at a time, uh, we'll actually do matching and, and, and pitch them into the students. We've had a great track record there. Uh, mm-hmm. And then with a few companies, we also run an internship program. So uh, if a company is looking to maintain a pipeline, we'll actually run an ongoing internship program where our grads who maybe want a softer on-ramp into a company, want to validate their skills before they hit that market, they'll do a three to six month stint in an internship. Uh, it's a pay, they're paid a stipend during that internship, but they're actually working on real sales deals. So they come out hmm. of it with real sales experience at a real company with real targets and numbers. No, that's that's really interesting. Like the especially the internship uh, apprentice kind of models, right? They're mm-hmm. more and more popular lately. Like you know, actually to go out and learn through doing real work, mm-hmm. right? Um, so going from a from a training perspective, right? Like, can you talk a little bit about your syllabus of like how do you train somebody in tech sales? Like, what goes into that? Totally. So it's a twelve week program, and it's two hours of of live workshopping every day. Uh, well, Monday to Friday. Um, so it's a very intense program. Uh, in terms of the Rather than going through everything, because that would take up the entire podcast if we went through the entire sales, yeah. uh, we go through the full life cycle of sales. So, you know, the first module is really around prospecting, you know, your social selling, your cadence design, you know, all of that. Um, that middle module is really around the sales methodologies, the processes, negotiation, a lot of focus on demos. Uh, if you're selling technology, even if you have the earliest stage of the pipeline, you got to feel comfortable you know, lifting, turning on, flicking the switch on the software and showing the customer. So we do spend a lot of time on demos. Um, we're a little bit lighter on some of the tail end stuff like negotiation and closing uh, because that's not the core focus. Most of our grads are going into SDR, junior AE, some um, kind of intermediate AE roles. Um, but a big, big focus, uh, more than more than half the class time is live workshopping. Mm. So we're talking about role play, cold calling, pitching, demoing, objections, all this stuff in rapid fire. And we're using all the tools you would expect. We're using Gong, we're using Zoom, we're using all of these tools. You've got hands-on experience. So now when you're interviewing, you can say, yes, I have been using Gong. I have been using SalesLoft. Yes, my outreach gets this. Yes, I can, my conversion rates are like this. That's where we spend a lot of our time. Uh, and there's a couple of things that are really unique to our program uh, because we have so much great data. Mm-hmm. We've got this playbook platform where technology companies are using it to drive their sales, we see some really interesting patterns. So a really good example, most companies, when they're training their sales teams, they'll talk about discovery questions early on, and they don't talk about objections until near your closing, when people bring it up. Mm-hmm. And that's logical if it's a schedule. One of the things that we've seen, though, is there's this very strong relationship between discovery questions and objection handling. Our clients who use Kite, the ones who have really well-defined, really articulated discovery questions have far fewer resources about objection handling. They just don't need them. Vice versa, with the companies who do a poor job at defining their discovery questions end up having a ton of material about competitors and objections. And so in our curriculum, we demonstrate that link around how your discovery questions are actually the best way to avoid your objections. Uh, and so the data gives us a few really interesting things that uh, aren't in any other programs. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it goes hand in hand, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. that's, it's really cool for you guys. You have these, uh, you have like the overall kind of view of the landscape and you have these data points coming in. 
Um, one of the things I'm really interested in with sales, though, right? Like you see this, the, you know, like even with check jobs, it's a traditional job. You're entering this larger infrastructure. Do you see that it's ever a, um, just like with, with like, in like more on the technology side where there's more freelancers available, do you ever see the need for a, a higher growth of freelancers in sales? That's a great question. We actually, we ran a, uh, we ran a webinar about this a couple of months ago, the future of sales as a service. And, and that idea of that was uh, on that. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, that idea being kind of like the hired gun. Uh, I think there's a little bit of yes and a little bit of no. Uh, and I think one, the the ecosystem is ripe for it. If you are somebody who has those polished skills, if you can be that hired gun already, mm-hmm. I think the ecosystem is is ripe for you to make a ton of money. And I think that the demand is only going to grow. Mm-hmm. However, if I sit back and I take a look at the role, like the, the business line of business, I think the industry still isn't mature enough to do that effectively at scale. Mm. Like the reality is um, engineering cultures are mature enough that you can have outsourced testing or you can outsource parts of your infrastructure because everybody knows what you need to do. Like yeah. you're pulling this lever, you're doing this. Yep. Sales isn't quite there yet. Too many organizations are still immature enough that it's really hard to have those handoffs. And so I think it's still a while before that idea of uh, more freelance, more contingent, more elastic sales teams. I think it's still a while before that really takes hold. So what does that require? Does it require like standardization of certain roles or like 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 of, of, or like job functions? You know, like like you said, like QA testing. There's certain standards that goes into that. So if you hand off to an outsourced team to do, or a freelancer to do QA, um, you know, you know, you kind of know what you're getting or could qualify their capabilities, right? It's it's not so much standardization. I think there's a little bit more about convention mm. in that um, a good a good example. There's not a lot of standards about code reviews on the engineering mm. side of things, but there's a lot of conventions on what makes a good code review or not. Uh, there's not a lot of conventions in sales yet. Like, what's a good handoff from an, uh, an SDR to an AE? One AE is going to say, I want to hop onto a call so you can tell me about this prospect. Another one's going to say, just toss the notes to the CRM. Another one's going to say, send me a Vidyard video. There's just not <laughs> as much convention, which makes it really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is there's nowhere near enough deliberate planning around onboarding. And that's that's where we've, I think, really benefited in terms of our business. We've spent a lot of time onboarding. Uh, mm-hmm. And the reality is engineering teams actually spend a lot of time thinking about onboarding. Support teams are excellent at this. Like, yeah. hey, we're always going to have new people. Here's how we onboard them. Here's what you need to read. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you get authorized for the next levels. Most sales teams are not rigorous enough on that. Mm-hmm. They say, come in, you're going to do some sales call shadowing. You're going to do some call shadowing. You're going to watch and we're going to sit you beside someone who's been doing this for a while. And like you magically learn. Absorb it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It, this is not reliable. And yeah, if you say, hey, I'm going to have this outsourced group in, in another country or another city do it, you, you just can't do it. So yeah. for us, the big thing that we see and, and where we spend a lot of our energy around is how do we streamline our onboarding, but how, more, more than just reducing it, it's how do we make it predictable? Mm. Uh, and so that, that idea of the internships, the, the way we onboard our own people, uh, the way we leverage our own software yeah. is all about streamlining that onboarding experience yeah definitely i think the holy grail for any company is predictable sales because it's predictable revenue uh-huh. right and i think that the biggest challenge is because sales relies on soft skills whereas engineering requires more on hard skills it's more quantifiable 
right? Like, uh, and that's right there. I disagree. Yeah, I fundamentally disagree. Okay. Yeah. So, so one engineering definitely relies on soft skills. Like mm-hmm. seriously, the way like, if I get a bit of code, so so Ravi, you send me a bit of code. I need to do a code review. There's a big difference between saying, "Hey, Ravi, this is area that I think you could do a bit better. Let me show you how," versus "This is shit. Go fix it." Like. Mm. Engineering actually really does. Having a well-functioning team relies a lot on soft skills. Mm-hmm. So I'd elevate that comment. But okay. the flip side is saying that um, sales relies on soft skills is buying into that mental, that cognitive trap of the shorthands. It's like, oh, Rami's a great conversationalist. I want to mm. talk to him. He gets those soft skills because we all accept that there's no other way to evaluate sales competence. And I think that's a fundamental flaw. And that's why folks who can ask good discovery questions, run a good demo, run their Zoom meeting like a pro, things that you'd point to and say are are hard skills um, get overlooked. Mm -hmm. I think the actual soft skills that apply uh, are are much more subtle. They're important, but they're they're not as critical to predictable sales. They kind of break out the, the great from the good, but you can be really good you know, not so. Yeah, if you can, if you can tell your story really well, you know what motivates you. What's your why? You're going to be able to connect with people in a way others can't. But you don't mm. have to have that weird intangible skill to succeed at sales and to be a predictable sales uh, a rep. Yeah. You, you need to have those fundamentals. Yeah, definitely. So, like one of the one of the challenges that um, like you know I'm really interested in is like as you scale a company, right? Uh-huh. Um, you know especially technical-led teams, you know, they kind of understand if I raise funds, I can hire, you know, this developer here, plug them in this role, plug them in that role. But you don't really think about sales teams that function. Like, as you mentioned earlier before, there's different kinds of strategies you can do to, to build a sales team, as you would an engineering team. But with sales team, it's the last plug and play, it almost seems, right? And and generally what ends up happening is, especially with startups, for a long time, it's generally the founder plus one or two other people in the company that does the sales, mm-hmm. Right. Um, that runs the, run the sales. There's very little coordination in developing a sales department or a, a sales branch of the business, right? Like, how do we, I guess my, my modality is like, like my, my thing is like, how do we fix that? Like, where did it come from? Is it, uh, like, for a long time, I thought it, it might be like freelancers, right? Like, you plug in like a, like a cheap model, $1,000 a month, and fractionally, they do sales for you. But like, again, how do you get delivery? How do you get support? Like, you know, all these questions kind of come uh, come into play. But like, is it, you know, fracture, like fracturing the job, uh, the, the position out? Is it retraining, um, you know, people that do like co-hybrid jobs, like wearing multiple hats? Like, how do you scale a team, uh, 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 so how to scale a company and while developing a sales infrastructure, right? Is there any thought leadership on this? I don't know if there's any thought leadership. I'm sure a lot of people are going to you know, say the same things that I say. I think yeah. there's there's two big, easy ones. And um I'm sure you're interviewing and asking other people the same questions. And, and yeah. if you ask them after me, so I'm going to take the easy ones. Uh, <laughs> the first one is that founders sell differently than anybody else ever will. Mm-hmm. And getting really comfortable that we need more founders who internalize and recognize that. The way, like, yeah, the way I sell, it's different than any other rep. So the worst thing I can do for my company is say, hey, you know, come on board, follow me and do what I'm doing. Because A, they can't. They just will never have the passion, the story that I have. Mm. And then, like, B, they're 
they're going to be evaluated differently. So even if they actually did the exact same thing I did, they'd fail because the customer looks at them differently. And so that, that's the first one, like really deeply internalizing that what I need to do to succeed in sales as a founder is fundamentally different than what a rep needs to do. Mm. And, and you got to be okay with that. Like you really deeply need to understand that. Um, the second thing is, you know, really this comes down to documentation. And I'm being really, really, uh, um, I'm minimizing the problem a lot. It's like in engineering, we'd say, hey, how do you build good code? How do you scale tail? It's like, yeah, documentation. But it's the same thing. It's like, hey, if you want to onboard others, if you want to get them to follow in your footsteps, you want to show that you're giving good thought, it's documenting. And mm-hmm. it's in sales, it's not like commenting your code. In sales, it's it's more like commenting your scripts. Here's the discovery question I asked. Here's the comment that I used. Here's the way I turned that phrase so that you can actually iterate. So little things like, uh, yeah, while you're selling, people keep bringing up certain competitors. And then testing out the words. Like, uh, you know, this is how I talk about the competitor or this is the word that I used. Oh, this is actually what's working. I'm going to write that down so the next person uses the same words. Mm. Um, little jokes. Uh, here, I'll give you an example, actually. Yeah. Uh, we were hiring a bunch of earlier, uh, more junior sales reps, and we really wanted to help express the ideas of jargon. It's like, yeah, if you have a playbook, it's really easy to ramp people on for jargon. They don't need to, you know, read a glossary and memorize it. They could just search it. One of our sales reps hit on the wording that resonated most with customers. You know, it's uh, LGTM. She's like, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and she she used this in one of her calls, and it was perfect. The customer got it. So then we had everybody do the same thing. What she had said was, yeah, jargon's so helpful because our team uses Slack, and I hadn't been using it much, uh, and people would reply to stuff, LGTM, and I was like, great, because I thought that meant let's get the money. Mm-hmm. And it was awesome. And everybody laughs because it's like, mm-hmm. hey, looks good to me. But being able to quickly connect and figure out that turn of phrase, after that, all of our reps would start to use that same phrasing, that same language. And to bring it all back, if you're not documenting that kind of thing, you're never going to be able to bring somebody in and say, here, go sell. Because hmm. if you bring someone in, you need to be able to give them that documented script. Here's the discovery questions you ask. Here's the phrases that you use. Here's what you need. This isn't rocket science. It's really just about documentation. Yeah. Like, I guess it's a, I guess it's a practice, right? You got to get used to the idea of writing stuff down and documenting that. That's interesting. One of the tools that I really enjoyed was uh, Gong. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to use it too much. But uh, the tools like Gong, which allows you to like, you know, listen to a call, um, uh, you know, figure out these keywords, um, see like what 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 kind of work keywords your you know yep. a bunch of reps are doing, and then given that kind of intelligence, it's it's so interesting, right? How much intelligence tools are now built into into that you can utilize uh, within the sales infrastructure. And uh, one of the things that I appreciated a lot about your um, your seminars and and uh, workshops that you run is you bring in all these different types of uh, communities around solving these kind of problems around sales, and, and together you kind of like you know isolate some problems within the industry and 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 talk about it, right? These these webinars you do like uh, one of the one of the interesting ones you brought in um, bravado, right? Mm-hmm. It's a hill from bravado, yeah. right? Cool community he's built of sales leaders, you know, um, you know, salespeople helping salespeople, but also doing referrals to each other, and all these kind of things, you know. And like seeing that kind of model really kind of invigorated me because going back to the idea of like these communities developing around around certain problems, around certain job sets, around job functions and things, right? Um, it, it takes me back to this this recurring conversation we have on the podcast. Like, uh, 
co-founder of AngelList, um, Naval, uh, Naval uh, Ravikant, right? He talks mm-hmm. about, he came, he went on the Joe Rogan podcast about two years ago, and he broke this idea that just really resonated with me, right? This idea that the internet is regressing us as a society, right? Because it's breaking apart the molds, uh, like, you know, like jobs are becoming more ethereal. You know, you're, you're spending less time being a 30-year job or a career, and you're becoming more like, you know, you kind of jump around between contract to contract. Uh, one, two is like, uh, because you can work from anywhere and especially COVID has taught us that, you know, remote is uh, remote is king now. Went from 4% of people, workers working remote to now 40% of the, the industry. And what's happening is that people are becoming like more like hunter and gatherers or like they're individually focused on pursuing value or joining a job or having multiple streams of income and individualism is rising, right? And let, there's people are less becoming specialists and more becoming generalist, right? They talk about the T structure, right? Like you have this like vertical kind of skill mm-hmm. sets that can be applied in many different places, but then something that you, very unique to you that you focus on and you provide this kind of like skill set um, into the into the job market and, and you get returns out of it, right? Like, what do you what do you think is uh, is uh, some of the changes we're seeing culturally and uh, uh, with the with the, with the rapid changes uh, COVID brought on with the fourth industrial revolution uh, coming on, right? Um, what do you see the future happening uh, moving towards? I think there's a, a ton of ton of great thoughts there. I think Naval's right about a lot of things. Um, mm. I don't agree with him about everything, but I think <laughs> there's a lot that he's right. Uh, you know, one of the things that I struggle with, uh, and I think regression is a good word for it, is that mm we're fostering an environment of, of more weaker social ties. And that's really hard. That's really, mm-hmm. really tough. I mean, uh, you know, it used to be that, hey, maybe somebody grows up in one community, maybe they move to another country or another community and they need to forge new ties. Um, and those points of transition uh, are, are really the description point. We're creating situations where you've got those transitions all the time. You're shifting workplace, you're shifting community, you're moving around, you can work for anywhere, so now you're more mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a lot more weaker social ties. Uh, and that's tough because, there, and there's a ton, a ton of research that people who have weaker social ties are more at risk of falling through the cracks in their social network. Like people who encounter homelessness, poverty, if you have fewer strong social ties, you're more likely to suffer from those because mm-hmm. you've got less of a network that you can lean on. So mm-hmm. I, I genuinely believe we have some challenges as a society if we propagate social structures that have no strong social ties. That's really, really risky. So I do, I worry about that. Uh, however, I disagree with the comments of we're all becoming uh, kind of hunter-gatherers. Uh, and like the T-shaped developer, the T-shaped person, all these things, I think those are true statements, but I don't think the idea of focusing on generalists is a bad thing because if anything holds true, repeatedly, mm-hmm. we automate specialists. You know, if if you're a specialist, you're great at making a watch movement. Well, your role is pretty much automated now. If you're really, really good at welding one specific part, mm-hmm. your, your role is pretty much automated. If you're really good at asking one type of discovery question, <laughs> that would be automated. And uh, that trend's not going to stop anytime soon. So I think having more people who have transferable skills Mm. is a good thing for us as a society, as industry. So I think that's a, a healthy, healthy thing. Um, I also think that if if you believe in modern economics, the idea of liquidity and mobility in a labor force is generally correlated with higher prosperity. If, if a, a labor force can move geographically better, mm-hmm. 
you generally have a, a more rapid growth in GDP. Your productivity increases. This is why free movement zones exist, why free trade agreements exist. As soon as you have better rules around uh, employment law, you know, where you can't lock an employee in, an employee can move at will employment, things like that. Generally, you see more economic, you know, drive. So I think that generally equipping people to be more self-sufficient, giving them more tools to be more mobile in their jobs and their careers, lets them pursue what they want to do better. So I'm generally an advocate for that. It's just important that we don't do that without paying attention to the social fabric. So mm. my call to action would be less about hey, avoid generalization, or hey, you know, prevent mobility in the labor force, but hey, everybody, let's also double down on our safety nets. You know, let's make sure that our leaders, our CEOs are, you know, donating, our philanthropists are supporting the social fabric because we have everybody with weaker social ties. More people are going to fall through. We've got to make sure that, that safety net is more resilient. Yeah. And one of the things that really inspired me was uh, Andrew Yang uh, when he ran for uh, yeah. ran for office, and uh, you know it made it more mainstream to talk about um, universal basic income (UBI), mm -hmm. right? Uh, like you know what we experience right now with COVID, with uh, not Siba, the other one, uh, Serb, mm -hmm. is essentially universal basic income. Anyone with a bank account can kind of, kind of apply for social assistance and get it. You know, and that's key. Only if you have a bank account, you can get it. Yeah. But like that that idea of like you know, resetting ground zero, that if you have no, if you're not generating any economic output, you're not having an income of zero, that you can have an income net positive uh, that's generally available for you. Like, you know, I, going back to that kind of talk, like, I agree with you that, you know, the social ties are important, but, you know, to socially change the cohesion of, of individuals is, is kind of difficult. But providing resources, a more equitable uh, allocation of resources allows for, and that's, that's actionable. Right, it's it's actionable, but uh, take the the right right phrase here. Uh, I think UBI is absolutely something worth investigating mm -hmm. and and exploring. Uh, I am not a proponent of just arbitrarily adopting it as a policy, um, and and the reason why is because the constructs that we have as as a a, a Western society. Um, you know, are predicated on, you know, democratic forms of government, um, capitalist, you know, models of running a marketplace. Um, things like UBI are changing some of those fundamental models. And uh, any system, any complex system, if you shift some of the fundamentals, you run the risk of a runaway cascade where everything can fall apart. And it's one of those things where the runaway cascade could be catastrophic. And there are very real questions that are also being asked, like mm. the role of a corporation. That's very, very well related. I mean, corporations as an entity are structurally designed to maximize shareholder value. Mm. There's a lot of work being done right now, a lot of research, a lot of companies making bold statements that it's more about maximizing overall impact, community value, societal impact. And we could just as easily as implementing UBI, we could implement other forms of licensing and authorizing corporations. So yeah. UBI is a really interesting and fascinating lever, but it is not the only one. There mm -hmm. are a lot of other levers that we can pull. And I'm very grateful for the fact that there are so many organizations that are 
actively researching. I love the fact that we've got this time-constrained experiment. Like over the next few years, there's going to be so much analysis over what just happened. It's going to be so great. Mm. Um, but I saw, so after uh, I told one of my previous companies, I spent a couple of years working for the Center for International Governance Innovation. And okay. that was the organization that uh, their research is what led to the move from uh, to to the major economic decision-making body, not being the G7, but being the G20. Mm. You know, the, the G20 not being just a finance organization, but being an international governance organization. They did a lot of work with the uh, UN panel on global sustainability. Um, and I mean, first off, it really showed me that I, I am nowhere near qualified to be an academic. Uh, I thrive in a faster-paced moving space, but wow, it also really helped me realize the ramifications of policy changes like that. Yeah. and how much thought really does need to be given to some of these process changes. And uh, I worry that a lot of the proponents of UBI haven't had the opportunity to see some mm. of those knock-on effects. And by focusing on that, you're missing some of the other items and the levers that could be pulled. Yeah. Do you have any favorites in mind like um, that you think about? Well, I mean, one of the, the large ones that I consider is the, the way that we go about licensing and authorizing the right to, to run a business. Like the whole okay. idea of a business. I mean, mm. we exist as individuals. We're in, we're in a democracy. We can vote. A business is really the government authorizing a fake person. You know, collectively, we're going to imagine this entity. The government is giving us a license to be this fake entity mm. in return for giving profits to the people who own it. Yeah. Okay. But that's really a social construct. Mm. Um we use taxing as the primary way to, to, to kind of capitalize on that. But there could be other ways, like mm -hmm. a business license could be tied to social impact. Social impact bonds are a really fascinating way to deliver that. Um, we, we don't spend a lot of time talking about uh, long-term capital. Uh, community funds are an amazing vehicle to have very localized, very, very large impact. There are a lot of levers to incentivize investment into community funds and endowments. Mm -hmm. uh, these, these are all things. We could incentivize the people who are leading them, like a, a great example. Mm -hmm. Here in Canada, we get great charitable tax receipts. That's great. The reality though, is it's still better for us to keep the money than to give it away. Mm. Well, we could be even more aggressive with that. Like, hey, you know what? If you were in a extremely wealthy class, you're already making a couple million a year. Make that donation receipt even more significant. There's other ways that we can incent the right behaviors. Um, so I don't, uh, UBI is an easy one. It catches the imagination really, really well. And it's, like you said, it's a really easy thing to say, let's do it. It's mm. actionable. Uh, it won't necessarily have the impact we hope. Uh, mm -hmm. And I really just hope that we get the right research to make the decision. And if it is, would love to do it. Just want to yeah. make sure we're not making snap decisions. Yeah, I agree with you. It's just like throwing money and and, and expecting a result, right? Mm -hmm. um, it can't be just tied to that, just that. It, there needs to be mechanisms behind that. And I like what you talked about, you know, about reimagining capitalism. Kind of like a, like, a, like a forefront of thinking right now, where, you know, like we have these things like um, uh, B Corps, right? Benefit mm -hmm. corporations. Uh, one of the things I was surprised to learn about is the idea, uh, is the idea of... Um, cooperatives being a, the fourth type of business that you can launch, mm -hmm. right? Like there's very little, very little knowledge about that. Like we don't even learn about it in civics class back, back home, right? Like in Canada, 
it's literally even Mars actually listed the four types of businesses that you can yep. uh, operate, right? Uh, partnerships, sole proprietor, corporate, and cooperatives, yep. right? Where yep. everyone kind of jointly owns this collective entity, like what you talked about. You launch this entity, but then everyone who works for it or everyone who's uh, underneath their umbrella collectively owns a piece of it. Is it restructuring it like that, or is it like reteaching how to run a corporation and what that means to you? Like, what do you feel? No. Um, I think I think both are true. Like the reality is, I think there's a lot of education we could do. Mm. Um, I think there's a a lot of impact that uh, venture capital has mm. in our perception of corporations, uh, venture and private equity. Um, you know, we we tend to glamorize growth over sustainability. You know, these these are some pretty common concepts that are pervasive in our dialogue, and I think a lot of that is influenced by venture capital and private equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, because the corporate structure of a sole proprietorship, a partnership, a cooperative doesn't lend itself to outside capital, it also drives everybody into kind of those, those corporate structures. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I think there's things we can do to encourage founders and executives to steer their companies differently. We can glamorize more things like make uh, donating a portion of your equity to the Upside Foundation, you know, if you're here in Canada. Um, so couple of things and i talk about these to founders all the time yes we donated we did our one percent to the upside foundation but we also give cash every month every every paycheck our employees donate a portion of their paycheck to the community foundation uh the kitchener water the community foundation so Mm. yes when we eventually sell the company there's going to be a huge upside but also right now we're donating money to help build that endowment Uh, and that's on top of what i as a founder as an executive do individually like my wife and i uh, so I think there's things we can do to encourage better behavior and governance, but I think there is also in that same realm of universal basic income, ways to redefine a corporate entity. Mm. So like a B Corp, yes, there, there are B Corp designations, but here in Canada, we do not actually have a separate entity that's a public benefit corporation. We just don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could. Like these, these are things that we can actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, social impact bonds. Uh, in a new emerging maturing space, I love the fact that we see more and more organizations and individuals backing them and pushing mm-hmm. them. Uh, I think there's opportunities for us to influence those as well. Uh, and if you take a look at some of the economic development programs uh, that other countries pursue, we haven't done this very much in Canada, uh, but where you set uh, prizes or bounties or uh, carve out future economic targets, um, you could take those same challenges and apply them to social goods. And I think there's some really interesting work being done on those fronts, too. Yeah, there's something that Elon Musk uh, recently just said that's really interesting to me. A friend of mine just sent a clip. Um, he talked about, like, you know, the conversation right now is steering towards capitalism versus socialism. You know, we're talking about, you know, is this a capitalist action? Is a socialist action? Like, you know, and that being that we're trapped in that modality. But it's, it's more about feedback loops, right? It's like if, uh, as, as, you, as, a, as you're a company, are you talking to your customer? Because if you're... A company that's in like more of a monopolistic situation, most likely or not, you're not talking to your customer because you have that power over them, right? And a government is ultimately in an ultimate mon- 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 monopoly. There's no other competing element to government. So that governments are notorious for not listening to the end customer, aka their citizenships, yeah. uh, right? So one of the things that uh, I think about a lot is like, how do we create more civic action? Not just people directly working in their community, but being more involved in the process around them. How do we shift government also from just being this outside entity that just oversees everything to be like, hey, we're actually part of this process, right? So I think there's 
there's two really, really strong comments there. I mean, number one is being a customer. Mm. And I mean, I'm not the only one who's saying this. Everybody's saying this. I mean, governments need to do a better job at being customers. Yeah. They spend a lot of money. They've got a lot of influence. Uh, spending money with a company that's already uh, kind of the leader in the space isn't necessarily driving innovation or driving GDP more. It's it's just more money chasing convention. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's an easy one. Using their purchasing power is a better way. And and again, thank goodness there's a lot of organizations who are banging that drum, moving that forward because it's happening, and that's a good thing. Um, the states is amazing at this. Uh, some countries are good. Canada's getting better. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the big one. Uh, I think a second thing is getting more people who are comfortable with change into government. And this is hard because it's also tied to hiring practices, labor practices, all those things. Uh, the world is changing at such a ridiculous pace. We need uh, more people involved in government who are comfortable with change. And there are some incredible people. Um, I know at the, the provincial level here in Ontario, the Ontario Digital Service has some remarkable leaders and they're doing some incredible things. And if you take a look at the way government has a, a reacted to COVID, we don't give anybody nearly enough credit mm-hmm. the way they moved on policy on systems on data like even just the movements on on vaccines and authorization like wow these are big moves quickly so yeah. more of that kind of stuff we got to give them more credit the one thing i'd push back on uh, as as tech companies we we tend to give the government a lot of flack mm-hmm. like, seriously i hate the fact that i've got to fax crap into the government sometimes <laughs> this is <laughs> terrible um so I'm on that bandwagon. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, but we forget the fact that we have the privilege of choosing our customers. Mm. I can say, I'm going to listen to my customers and these are the ones I'm going to sell to and they're going to give me money. And that's great. I'm going to build it bespoke for them. When you're the government, you can't. Hmm. Everybody is your customer. So if your customer can't read it, what's on your website, you can't just say, great, I don't want them as a customer. You have to fix it. If, you're, if your customer... Is stuck in a wheelchair so they can't get to your location you got to figure out how to get there and yeah that's going to cost you a lot of money you can't just go oh i don't want them as a customer so our whole frame of reference for move faster break things deliver more is predicated on this idea that we get to choose our customers and when you're Mm -hmm. the government you can't your customer is actually everyone get over it and that's that's hard no that's uh, i think that's quite a statement that has a lot of wisdom in that um, I mean, we'll end with this, like, what is success to you and where do you want to go from here? It's so funny. Uh, if you'd asked me this a year ago, last year, I would have really, like, I love founding companies. And I've always loved creating environments where people can do their best work and they feel fulfilled. And, and I would have really pounded on that. Um, but I'd never run a consumer based company before. And I'm still looking for the right words, but I get to see every day People come into us talking about how we've changed their lives, how we've transformed what they see in themselves, what their futures are, what their opportunities are. Um, I have customers who tell us, uh, Joseph Yuvaro helped me find my why. I have customers coming in saying, I've never felt more human before. Mm. Customers saying, you saved my life. One of our clients, he just came to our our offsite and he's talking about how he, he used to work in the oil fields and he almost died on three separate occasions due to poor practices of other people yeah he's like i need a job that's not going to kill me mm-hmm. and now he's selling hr software from the safety of his living room he's yeah. like hey you, you guys saved my life so when i think about success i think i still got to figure out the more succinct way to answer this uh but having a bigger impact in, in more lives and helping more people realize the future they want uh, and and we're getting there we're getting there one step at a time 
Perfect. Um, Joseph, thank you so much for your time. I think we covered a great one of the topics. Stick around for a few minutes. Uh, we'll do a debrief, but uh, for everyone else listening, thanks for tuning in. And this is Joseph from Uvero and Kite.